But values shape us. That's what we've been saying. We recognise we live in a world and a culture where we are being shaped by values. The values of the world, uh, values of uh, all sorts of people, celebrities, politicians, uh, teachers, educationalists, everyone. There are values, and those values shape us. But the most important thing for us to be shaped by is this. We want to be shaped by the Word of God. And wasn't Paul's word to us last week superb as he talked about the value of the Word of God? And so there are things that we believe in. We believe the Bible teaches us that we want to shape us, shape us as a church, and shape us as a family of churches. So we've been, we felt it was good to share some of those. Today, we're going to look at one of my most favourite, favourite subjects. So... Uh, Hold on to your horses, batten down the hatches, because we're going to look at thrilled and motivated by grace. Grace. We are saved by grace. This is the sentence. We're saved by grace, sustained by grace, and will be glorified because of grace. The truth gives us great cause for rejoicing. Thanks, Lana. And impacts our relationships with one another and the world. Lord, we thank you for the grace of God. We pray this morning as we open your word together, as we look at this great subject of grace. Lord, indeed, may it impact us again. May it shape us. May it work in us truth deep into our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at two scriptures together. <clears throat> I've got one of those. Forgive me, I'm just going to turn this off a minute. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The two scriptures we're going to look at. Philippians chapter 2, wonderful, wonderful chapter. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to take advantage of, to be exploited, but made himself nothing. Being found in appearance as a man, very taking the nature of a servant, found in the appearance, human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place, given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Amen. 2 Corinthians 8. 
Now, brothers and sisters, verse 1, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Giving is a privilege. They did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to, be, uh, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. Here is my advice about what is best for you to do in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has not what according to what he does not have. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I am old enough and have grown up in certain churches to say the grace at the end of services. Who remembers saying the grace? The thing I the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with us all evermore. Amen. Now, some of us used to say it that fast, you know, and if we were teenagers as well. The other thing was, you were supposed to look at each other in the eye. Do you remember that? The thing was, being British, and we never really knew where to look. So you go, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the thing is, as you looked at someone else, they looked the other way. So you go, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship. And then you think, is there someone behind me? You know, just a memory. Some of you remember that, don't you? Some of you remember it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? For myself, I would say that I certainly have been thrilled and motivated by grace. That's our little value phrase today. Thrilled and motivated by grace. I would say, apart from my salvation, knowing that my sins were forgiving, uh, forgiven, getting a revelation and an understanding of the grace of God has been the single most important thing in my Christian life. It's one that's brought me great blessing and great freedom into my life. Now, I've already mentioned a couple of times since I've been here that I, I grew up in a very strict, legalistic church setting, not so much in my home, but in the church that we were part of. It was a life of rules in church, regulations about what you should wear, what you shouldn't wear, the length of your hair, what you watched and didn't watch. Um, or, I mean, many, many things, everything I was just thinking today even about some of the girls who were sent home from church because they were wearing jeans. 
And uh, here I am preaching in jeans to today. I could go on about where you could eat, what you could eat, what you could drink, who, with who and, and not. It was all about lords. And it was all about doing. As a result, I spent a great deal of my Christian, early Christian life trying to do the right thing. Trying to be seen to do the right thing. Ultimately, about, it was about trying to please God. Please others by my works. But rarely feeling like I had ever done enough. Rarely feeling like I got through a week and done well. And if I did feel like I'd done well, then suddenly realising I was into pride. It's not until I began to hear the message of God's grace that I began to understand that God's love God's favour, God's blessing in my life had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with my behaviour. It had nothing to do with my works. It was all because of the grace of God being lavished on me through the person and the life of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And more than that, there was nothing that I could say or that I could do that could increase it could make God love me more, or that there was nothing that I could do to remove it, to make God love me less. Just let the cogs go round for a moment. See, even now, I find, I don't know about you, I still have to fight the urge to do something to please God. I want to start really praying, if I really if I want to start uh, talking to God about something, I need his wisdom and advice. I need to have at least a few days of being good. Am I the only one like that? I want to give a brief reminder of the difference between mercy and grace. We talk about mercy and grace a lot. They're wonderful words. They're often linked together. They're the opposites, really, of the same coin. Mercy is this. I did not get what I did deserve. Mercy. All have sinned, Romans 3, Romans 5. All have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's perfect holiness. We are dead in our sin. We deserve the righteous judgment of God. But in his mercy and his love, God did not give us what we deserve. That was his mercy. Mercy is not getting uh, what uh, we deserve. Grace is lavished upon us so that we receive what we did not deserve. That's the grace of God. Philip Yancey in his great book, I'm sure some of you will have read it, What's So Amazing About Grace? He calls this the new maths of grace. The new maths of grace. He talks about the mathematics of the gospel. What's the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's totally different. The maths of the gospel is totally different to the world in which we've grown up in and the world in which we live. See, from an early age, we are taught values. We are taught certain things. They shape us. We are taught that to succeed in this world of what Yancey calls a world of ungrace, we get phrases like this. The early bird gets the worm. No pain, no gain. There's no such thing as a free lunch. 
demand your rights. You get what you pay for, etc., etc. And we are conditioned to think that people should get what they deserve. They've earned it, they deserve it, or the other way around, they're getting what they deserve. If you hear that intonation. But the maths of the gospel is totally different. Totally different. I do not get what I deserve. I deserve punishment, and I get forgiveness. I deserve wrath, and I get love. I deserve prison for my bankruptcy. Instead, I get a totally clean credit history. I deserve stern lectures and crawl-on-your-knees repentance. Instead, I get a banquet laid before me in the presence of my enemy with the very best vintage wine and a gourmet menu. Not dissimilar to what you get at the Joneses' house. (laughs) That's the maths of the gospel. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, though he was rich... The perfect, holy Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, victorious one, the creator, the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come, the Almighty, though he was rich, for your sake became poor. He humbled himself, taking on the very nature of a created human being, being found in likeness as a man. He humbled himself became poor, that through his poverty, you might become rich. Somebody say hallelujah, please. Come on, I need some Africans in the room today. I want to look at that verse further in a moment, but we need to grasp this truth. If you're doubting God's love, if you're questioning the grace of God towards you or to someone else, you're looking at them, you're thinking, are they deserving? Should they? I want to point you to just a couple of people in the Bible where God displayed his love and his grace. Just tiny little cameos. Take Jacob. Okay, We first find Jacob in chapter 25 of Genesis. You can read on through Genesis. Jacob is the son of Isaac. His granddad, his grandpa is Abraham. But he wasn't the nicest of men. He's actually known as a deceiver, a deceitful man. He tricked his older brother out of his birthright. He tricked his father into giving it to him instead. He was a man who dared to take on God in a wrestling match and he limped for the rest of his life. And yet Jacob's name became synonymous. It became known as what was used to describe God's people, the children of Israel. The children of Israel. Have another man who's an adulterer a murderer, and yet he gained a reputation as the greatest king in the Old Testament, a man described as after God's own heart, David, King David. What about one of the first great churches being led by a disciple who, when push came to shove, cursed and swore that he had never even known Jesus? Peter. Think about one of the greatest missionaries and church planters of all time who started out as a torturer of Christians. Sometimes you'll see a horrific picture maybe on the front of the newspaper or on a, on a, on a news article of an elderly man or woman. They've been terribly beaten by someone and you see all the bruises and you just think to yourself, what kind of person could do that to someone else, particularly an older person? 
You read the book of Acts, you will find that kind of person that could do that kind of thing, who could stand and watch people being stoned to death for their faith. But in God's mercy and grace, he became an apostle, a father of the church, a servant of Jesus Christ, writing letters that are so great, we still read them today, this morning. The Apostle Paul. If God can love that kind of person, then why can't he love you or someone else that you're concerned for? So important for us to grasp the grace of God, brothers and sisters, this morning. It is not based on who you are. It is based on who he is. It's based on who he is. See, if the grace of God is based on my efforts, if it's based on my behavior, then when I fail badly in my walk with God, or I feel like I'm failing badly, or I simply go through a time of feeling rejected or unloved, what happens is I will quickly go into a time of guilt and self-doubt, and I will blame myself. And I will rapidly then quickly get into a must-try-harder mode. Must read my Bible every day. Must pray more. Must put more effort in. Must uh, be, be better at remembering with my giving. Must sign up for another activity in the life of the church. Then, God. It's not based on that. It's not based. It's based on who he is. His love and his mercy and his grace. Hallelujah. Thank God it is. Because do you know what? However much you give, however much you serve, it's never enough. It's never enough. And you know, and you try, you run a bit harder, it's not enough. It's not enough. Why? Because he is perfect. He is holy. He is the righteous one. We cannot enter into his presence unless we enter through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the other thing about Jacob. Great little story, weird story. You know, uh, Jacob was a hairy man. I'm quite a hairy man. I just haven't got any on my head. But anyway, but, hairy, but he hid himself in his brother. No, Esau was the hairy one, wasn't he? Sorry. Jacob hid himself in his brother. So he pretended. He put on animal skins and tricked his dad. Sorry, I'm getting my... It's because I've gone off piece, you see. It's always dangerous. But that's a wonderful picture of us in Jesus. That we hide ourselves in Jesus. As we come to the Father, we don't come with any of our works. We come hidden in Jesus. And the Father looks at us. He says, you're clothed in Christ. Hallelujah. Your sin is forgiven. You've died. I've died? Yeah, you've died in Christ. You've been buried with him. And you've been raised again to new life. You're now seated with Christ in heavenly places. Somebody say hallelujah. Come on. We're hidden in Christ. Wonderful truth. Wonderful truth. I have no idea where I am in my notes now, you see. This is the thing. <laughs> thing about fear. You know, when you live in the fear of God, it's incredibly controlling. It, it, can, it can really dominate your life if you don't get hold of the grace of God. Before I understood the grace of God, we, as you heard, we came from a very strict background 
if it means anything to you, it was called the Exclusive Brethren. That's what I grew up in. But we didn't have it at the cinema. We didn't have television. We didn't have radio. didn't have records, if anybody remembers records. Um, we didn't have pets. We didn't have holidays. But actually, it was a lovely life. We had a really good community family life. So don't be, feel too sorry for me. But, um, but television was a big no-no. You just didn't have television at all. Eventually, by God's grace, we got thrown out of that church, um, and uh, <laughs> it was great. It, I have to tell you, it was extremely traumatic. It was very painful. It was a terrible time, but it was God's, and I look back now, and it was God's. But uh, my mum was a royalist. She loved the royal family, absolutely loved the royal family. Used to take us as kids up to see all sorts of trooping in the colour and all sorts of things. She used to go up there and uh, we'd stand and wave at these people and <clears throat> I remember it well. But she loved the royal family and she'd heard about this thing called the Royal Variety Performance. And she really wanted to watch the Royal Variety f- Performance. In fact, some years before, uh, I don't know if you remember Princess Anne getting married to Captain Mark Phillips. My mum discovered that in the corner of one of the cafes in the town where we live, Winchester, just over the water there, there was a television and they were going to show the royal wedding. So, because we're not allowed to watch television, look at television. Well, we weren't watching television, we were going to the cafe. (laughs) Mum took us to the cafe. We weren't allowed to eat with anyone else, but we could eat together as a family. And we ate. But it was funny, my mum's seat was here and the telly was right there with the royal family. (laughs) That's another story. Anyway... The day came, my dad was going to buy a telly and was going to bring it into the house. I have to tell you, genuinely, I can still feel it now, I was terrified. I was about 14, I was terrified. And I remember leaving the house to go swimming, I was big into swimming those days. I remember leaving the house to walk down to swimming and actually genuinely thinking that a bolt of lightning was going to come from the sky and hit me because we had a television in our house. That's the fear of God that is not biblical fear of God. That's not based on grace. That's based on a terror. That's based on a a misunderstanding of the love and the grace of God. The day eventually came when I understood the message of grace. I remember, as it were, metaphorically, if you like, looking up and seeing the face of the Father with a smile on his face. His acceptance through Christ. Friends, I want to remind you that God knows everything about us already. Everything about us already. And yet he's totally and utterly for us and towards us. So much so that he sent his son to die for us. See, we like to think that we had something to do with our salvation. Somehow, we gradually woke up to the possibility of God and that we reached out to him, if you like, like someone drifting out to sea. I've been watching the R&I programs. I expect some of you have. You know, people drifting out to sea and somehow, you know, I recognized God and I reached out to him and I grabbed hold somehow of a lifeline. But the Bible makes it clear that it was far worse than that. Just bring up some verses We could do Colossians 2, but Ephesians 2. The Bible says you were dead. There was nothing in you to reach out to Christ. 
you didn't have any involvement. You might like to think you had an involvement. I want to tell you the very fact that you turned, the very fact that you considered, the very fact that you listened to your friend, your parent, the very fact you first went to church was a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You were dead in your sin. You were, oh, is it up there, Ephesians 2? Yeah, you were dead in your sin. You were following Satan, verse 2. Verse 3, you were children of wrath. The righteous wrath of God was upon us. We were not drowning in our sins. We had already drowned. There was nothing in us towards God. And to quote, I think, again, it's probably Yancey. Uh, I know it's not from me, but he came walking through the graveyard of our dead state. He came walking through the graveyard of our dead state. And by his grace, he gave us what we did not deserve. Verse 5, what did he do? He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. 5 to 8 and 8, it is by grace you have been saved by faith. It's not from yourself. Why? So that no one can boast. Ah, but I did this. I brought this to the table. I added this. This is my money. This is my giving, my serving. No, you brought nothing. You were dead. It's by grace you have been saved. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You get to the point, you say, Mark, but this is scandalous. It's crazy. It's upside down. Where is the justice? Think of all the terrible people in the world. Think of all the terrible things that have been done. A price must be paid. It has been paid. It has been paid. That's the amazing maths of the gospel. The good news about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. You're a child of the king. You're a prince, a princess. You're seated with God in heavenly places right now. That you might become rich. Price has been paid by God himself. God gave up his own son rather than giving up on you. Grace costs us nothing. It costs him everything. See, God is not some nice grandpa slipping you a a new, shiny, multi-sided pound coin. Don't forget to get rid of all your old ones today. Apparently it's the last day. Grace, in the words of Andrew Wilson, is definitively lasting, totally inappropriate, unreasonably enormous, and completely transforming. Gift of God. Can I say that again? definitively lasting, totally inappropriate, unreasonably enormous, and completely transforming. Gift of God. He not only takes away what we deserve, the wrath of God, separation from Him and death, He also gives us what we do not deserve. He gives us justification. He declares us to be right, just as if I had never sinned. He gives us union with Christ. We're united with Christ. He gives us union with one another. We're in God's family. We've got brothers and sisters. And he gives us eternal life. We're seated with him in heavenly places. Grace is free, but only because the Lord Jesus Christ, who was rich 
for your sake became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. So you say, Mark, well, that is wonderful. Love that. What's that got to do with the story about an offering in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? What, what is going on there? Well, I just want to, for a couple of moments, say this. We are saved by grace, but we're also motivated by grace. See, Paul does seem to be reminding this church at Corinth to sort out a gift that hasn't quite been completed. It's a, it's a quirky little story. They seem to have committed to a gift. It hasn't quite happened yet. I mean, it was a time and place there. There were boats to go on. There were travel to be done, so on. But he, actually, I don't think that's the heart of the story. He's not giving them a nudge and saying, hey, you've forgotten to complete that gift. He's talking about motivation. He's talking about motivation. See, Paul is not laying down the law... He's not commanding them. He's not even asking them actually to go beyond their means. I think these two verses uh, in verses 11 and 12 are key to this whole subject of how we're motivated by grace, whether it be in our giving, our serving, or anything else. Finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. There's a first little phrase. You hear that? God's not asking you to do what you can't do. Some of us feel like, unless I'm so stretched, I'm about to snap, I'm not really serving, I'm not really giving. I don't believe that's the heart of God. He's talking about, what what, what are your means? What have you got faith for? What have you got grace for? That it might be according to your means. Okay. Now there is faith, there is stretch, but I want you to hear that phrase there. Verse 12, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what they do not have. To use the Mark Thornett paraphrase, if you like, it's not about how much, it's about your heart. It's about your heart. Has God got your heart? You see, for one of us to give £10 a week or £10 a month, that's a huge stretch. It's a big, big thing. For another one of us to do that, it's just nothing. It's money I carry around in my wallet for spare change. For another one of us, God will call us to give hundreds and thousands. It's not, you see, it's not that one is better than the other. It's like, what is God speaking to you? and What are you doing in your heart? Who are you doing it for? Who are you doing it towards? Who are you trying to please? It's a response of your heart. Got a quote here, a great little book um, that's been doing the rounds in some of our churches, Gaining by Losing, uh, J.D. Greer. He says this, It's neither guilt over what you're not doing, nor excitement over how God might bless you that produces a truly generous heart. Let me just read that again. It's neither guilt over what you're not doing, nor excitement over how God might bless you that produces a truly generous heart. It is deep gratitude for what Christ has already done for you on the cross. Underlined here, remembering the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ does does more to compel generosity than a hundred sermons that pummel you with guilt or inspire you with promises. 
I've, I've always I've spoken on, on giving. I feel it's something I want to speak on again in uh, a few, uh, a couple of months' time, probably in the new year. As we, as we look out in the new year, we just take a moment to take account of where we're at, to look at our giving freshly, look at our serving freshly. It's a good time to do that in the new year, and I will speak on that. But my heart, you know, is never to berate the church. It's never to berate people and say, you know, you ought to be doing this, you ought to be doing that. What I want to preach on is the grace of God. Because when I get hold of the grace of God, it motivates me in every area. How God looks at me. I'm able not to just look at the tithe. Ah, but the, you know, the Bible talks about the tithe. But I don't look at the tithe. I look at the cross of Christ. Who became poor that I might become rich? Who laid down his life? That's who I look at. I don't no longer look at the law. And it's grace that motivates me in my giving. It's grace that motivates me in my serving. It's, Lord, everything is from you. I had nothing. I was dead. You laid down your life that I might live. Now everything I have is yours. Yes, I make a decision. He says, look, I've given you this, this so that you might live and you might feed your family and, uh, and you might live well. I believe that, that God gives it to that. But actually, it's all his. It's all from him. He can take any of it at any time. Uh, I love that song we sometimes sing. You give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe God is in control. Everything I have is from him. Everything I have is from him. And so to say, well, I'm just begrudgingly. He doesn't want our begrudgingly anything. Don't be begrudging. If you don't have faith for it, if you don't have grace for it, don't do it. Don't do it. Do it with grace. Do it with love. Yes, things will stretch us. Yes, they will challenge us. Uh, there's faith to be exercised. But I want to say to you, give out of a response to grace. You got a sermon on giving anyway, even if you didn't want it. Didn't you? <laughs> it's the response of my heart to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't earn his love. There's nothing I can do to make him love me more or to love me less. But as I get a revelation of his totally inappropriate, unreasonable, enormous and completely transforming grace, I'm freed to respond to him in ways that look to the world like they're totally inappropriate. Unreasonably enormous, even crazy. You give away how much each month? You're committing... How much to the work of God? How can you do that? How can you possibly... What on earth is going on in your mind when you do that? It's the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich for my sake, became poor, humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what motivates me. That's how I can do it. Remember many years ago, a bank manager ringing us up in the days when bank managers used to ring you up and just want to talk about the various incomings and outgoings in your bank account, Mr. Thornett. Okay. Um, this is, is quite some years ago. <laughs> and uh, he, he went all the way through. At that point, I was working for the church. I was being paid by the church. And he said, I see that there's a fairly substantial sum that seems to go out to your employer every month. He said, what is that? I said, that's my giving. Oh, he said, I see. Oh, well, we can't change that, can we? (laughs) It's a response to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I'm repeating myself on purpose because it needs to get under our skin. It needs to get into our heads. It needs to get into our hearts because it will radically revolutionize our lives and our thinking. You want to change this town. We want to change this town for God's glory. We want to see this island change for God's glory, this nation change for God's glory. We need to understand the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm freed from trying to please God, please others. It's no longer about my outward appearance. It's no longer about doing the right things. It's about the state of my heart, which is cleansed by his grace. I'm free to be all that he made me to be. I'm free to worship him with real joy and freedom, to serve and to give with sacrificial generosity, to abandon myself to his mercy and his grace. It has nothing to do with who's looking on, who's watching on. So I'm saved. In the little notes it says I'm saved, I'm sustained, I'm even glorified by grace. That's a whole subject in itself. We have an eternal hope. I'm secure. My future is secure because of the grace of God. The grace of God motivates me in how I respond to him in worship and all that I have, all my possessions, all my belongings. And then finally, I want to come in just a second to a communion. I'd love us to share communion. We've got a few moments just before we need to get the children But I just want to say this, finally, all of those things are motivated by grace. It also impacts my attitude and my relationships to others and to the world in which I live. When I begin to grasp and understand just how much the Father loves me, just how much he's forgiven me, that he's not treated me as my sins deserve, it begins to impact, it begins to shape my attitude and my relationship to others, whoever they are. Whoever they are. Whatever their background, whatever their culture, whatever their education, whatever their financial position Whatever the color of their skin or their gender, the grace of God shapes how I respond to whoever. I receive them as I have been received. I receive them as I have been received. I don't condemn I don't put laws and weights on them. I show them love and mercy and grace. Yes, sure, I lead them to the Scripture. There's some challenging, challenging things in God's Word. Of course, I point them to the Word of God. I point them to the truth. But I do it knowing that I was once dead. I was a sinner saved by grace. I am no different to anyone else. I display Christ to them. When I spoke on grace back in March, April, I highlighted the story from John 8 when the Pharisees brought the uh, woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. I don't know if you remember that. And what they did was they threw her at his feet and basically asked him a question from the law. They were trying to trick him. They were trying to ask him a trick question. Um, you know, the law says that we're perfectly entitled to stone this woman. What would you do? And they're trying to trick him, giving a wrong answer. I'm not going to go into the whole story again, but Jesus said this to them, didn't he? He said, 
Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up uh, and asked her, this is John 8, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. What did Jesus say? Then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Mercy and grace mingled together with a deep call for righteous obedience. Mercy. We don't get what we deserve. The law, however horrific we might think of it today, the law entitled them to stone her because she'd been caught in adultery. That's what the law said that they could do. She could, it could legally have been done. Grace. When we do get what we don't deserve, neither do I condemn you. Jesus could justly, could rightly have condemned her. The grace upon my life as the great song goes, is not dependent on me, on what I've done or deserved, but it's a gift of mercy from God, which has been given to me because of his love, because of his love for me. It's unending. It's unfailing. It's unmerited, the grace of God that has been given to me. See, pride arrogance, fear even, says, look at me, look at what I've done, look at what I've achieved. Jesus says, have you? Have you? Then cast the first stone. Go on, you can throw one. When I realise my sin, when I realise my state before a holy and perfect God, when I realise the love and grace and mercy that God displays to me in Jesus Christ through his death on the cross, it draws me, it causes me, it motivates me to respond with the whole of my life and towards the whole of the world, whoever they are. It shapes my attitude. It shapes my thinking towards my possessions, towards my money. It shapes my attitude in how I relate and treat and respond to those around me. How I speak to them. It changes everything. Can I invite you to stand? We are saved by grace. We are sustained by grace. We will be glorified because of grace. This truth gives us great cause for rejoicing and it impacts our relationships with one another and the world. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich for our sake, became poor, even death on a cross, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Lord, as we come to your table just in these last moments, we give thanks for your grace and your mercy. Lord, you have not treated us as our sins deserve. 
we thank you today that if we turn and repent, if we confess our sin, Lord, you are faithful and just and you lavish us with your grace. You pour out your love upon us. I pray for each person here in this room this morning. Lord, if any person does not feel worthy, I pray that they be caused to look at your cross and to understand that they are worthy before the Father because of the Son. I pray for each person who recognizes that there is sin in their life. Lord, would you cause them to confess that sin and to receive your grace and receive your mercy this morning. I pray, Lord, that as we come to this table, Lord, as we take of of this bread and this juice that speaks so powerfully of all that we've been speaking of over these last moments, Lord, would you feed us again with this truth. Lord, as we, as we drink and eat, Lord, may we be fed with this incredible message of grace. And Lord, may it help us to respond as we, as we give, as we serve, as we bless, as we go out into the community around us and the world in which you placed us. May we be flooded with your grace. Lord God, and may men and women and our friends around us, may they also know your grace. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.